Wrinkle, wrinkle, little sky. Count the freckles on my arm. If freckles don't mean anything, does anything mean anything? This yes. is hell. Behind every great fortune is a great crime. This is hell, and we are all starting to learn about the crime behind the fortunes of crypto. And apparently that crime is fraud. When yet another crypto-related outfit, in this case FTX, went under back on November 11th, a lot of people, okay, me, had schadenfreude, the thoroughly disgusting pleasure we sometimes get from others' misfortune. That's because a lot of us, okay, again, me, enjoy what are called crypto bros getting their comeuppance in what is obviously a pyramid scheme. At least, it seems it's pretty obvious to me. I mean, it has bros in the title, so the group of people called crypto bros probably sucks. According to Urban Dictionary, a crypto bro is a person with a weak grasp of cryptocurrency and blockchain applications, yet has formed very strong opinions on the best cryptocurrency and blockchain applications. They are often observed parading their involvement in crypto and arguing with other crypto bros. A crypto bro is a, a nerd with too much spare time and too many video cards. Crypto bros think they are smarter than you. They will ignore any meaningful arguments against what they do by repeating something about serious business like a thousand times. One of the first rules of a crypto bro is that they first be a male, uh, their traits include being condescending, always on their phones, heavy use of crypto slang and abbreviations, and an overuse of the rocket emoji, which signifies a rapid rise in value. But what if that's not who was being targeted in what appeared to be the lies behind the frauds of groups like FTX? What if instead of what the media says, leaving us with little compassion for those who have been victims of these crypto scams, what if there are people who are actually living desperate, precarious lives who are under or unbanked entirely, not having affordable or necessary uh, access to services for banking in any version or any way. In a few minutes, we'll speak with award-winning filmmaker, director, and writer Esme Van Hoffman, who wrote the Lever article, I Heard It Was Safe. Andrew Gronick and many young FTX investors were tricked into believing the crypto exchange was as stable and protected as a typical bank account. Esme wrote and directed the recently released 2019 award-winning feature film, Ovid and the Art of Love, based on the life of the Roman poet Ovid, but it is set in a mashup world of contemporary Detroit which sounds fascinating to me, as that's where I was born. Her journalistic writing has appeared in publications such as the Harvard Kennedy School Review, The Indie Star, and MSN Money. You can follow Esme on Twitter at Esme, E-S-M-E, underscore Von, V-O-N, or find out more about Esme at EsmeVonHoffman.com. 
gmail.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, how was your weekend? Uh, weren't you going to be distributing food to uh, love fridges in the neighborhood? Indeed I did on Saturday. I had a pretty small pickup from this grocery store. A supermarket, though? Is Aldi, yeah. Okay. Uh, so they're, they organize with people who pick up donations so i don't want to demonize them too much but uh uh yeah i just brought it back up here to this california and devon love fridge and uh it i was a little bit worried because the temperature is something that you have to keep in mind in the winter here when you're bringing stuff to love fridge because they're not plugged in i yeah perhaps i'm not sure but I'm not sure if they're always plugged in or not, whatever's going on. But basically, if it's below freezing, only the produce can freeze and not be good anymore. And the temperature was like 32, 33, like so straddling, frozen. And I had a bunch of produce, but I didn't want to bring it to the cold storage warehouse because it it was like it needed to get used right away. So I was a little bit worried, but like we were talking about on Patreon the other day, everything gets taken super quick so like by the time i was leaving there were already people taking everything back to their families no that's very cool so you act you do see people when you're loading up the fridge taking stuff out already uh most of the time oh no not always uh but most of the time especially if i have like a lot to unload and i'm gonna it takes me a while eventually somebody walks up (laughs) or many people walk up and uh yeah when did you start doing this during the pandemic i mean the beginning of the pandemic yeah, I, I guess it was the beginning of the pandemic. That's one of my friends I was working with at the time told me about Rogers Park Food Not Bombs. And I was living right down the street from where they were um, operating out of at the time. And so I was like, how did I never hear about this? It's really funny and it's full circle because the first job I ever had when I moved to Chicago, I worked in the bakery closing shift at Whole Foods and my job was to like throw away and trash compact (laughs) so much bread every night they make bread every night and they they only I don't know at the time I was working there they can only donate so much bread they make way more bread than anyways so that the Whole Foods that I worked at Food Not Bombs actually was like picking up was were the people picking up their donations and I didn't find them until like two late two years later um, but that's crazy. You were making the uh, you were making food that was being wasted, and now you're taking food that might be wasted and uh, getting it to people who need it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I wasn't making it before. I was just the closing shift, so I was just throwing it away. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how I knew it was such a problem. <laughs> that when I heard about food not bombs, I was like, those sound like my kind of people. And so that's when I started uh, doing that. And the love fridges, I think, were just starting to get built at that time. Too. So over the past like two, three years, I've been... Um, so have you noticed that they're being used more or less in those two years? Is it changing? Oh, definitely more. I mean, just more people. Wow. There are more fridges and more people know about them. And there's just a lots of trial and error when doing something that's really new and revolutionary, like a public fridge, like they need to be cleaned, the maintenance, them being outside how fat, you know, like if food's going to get frozen, you know, if it's going to go bad. There's no, I wish there were like compost bins right outside of them. That's something that 
is maybe the future, but... <laughs> well, you had a very selfless weekend. I had a very selfish weekend. My weekend started by being unable to hang out with friends because I was in intense pain from needing a root canal. I know I said at the end of last week's show that I wasn't going to talk about my health condition anymore, uh, but last year I talked about it a lot because I was going through a health crisis, and then this happened to me this weekend. I Saturday morning, I... I had a root canal at 9.30 in the freaking morning, and then I had an oddly productive day while in intense pain all day, which led to a very relaxing Sunday. And despite getting a root canal that may or may not have already failed, yes, they still might have to extract the tooth anyway. I had a pretty good weekend. Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... What have you repeatedly failed to do but keep trying to achieve anyway? <laughs> what have you repa- repeatedly failed to do but continue to try achieving anyway? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a brand new moment of truth. The first of the new year from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you'll get your choice of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Lindsay has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is try the brat diet. And that's brat in all caps. Or brat? <laughs> brat. B-R-A-T. Yes. <laughs> On the day prior to the 2022 winter solstice, the Washington Post ran the story, How to Cure or Prevent a Hangover. The only certain way to avoid a hangover is to not drink. But there are some things you can do before, during, and after drinking that can lower your risk. By Adahan O'Connor. Adahan writes, The brat in brat diet stands for bananas rice applesauce and toast this diet was originally designed for children with upset stomachs if you're experiencing nausea the morning after a big night out it might be best to start with bland foods instead of having a heavy meal the post's Adahan then quotes Julia Zumpano, a registered dietitian with the Cleveland Clinic Center for Human Nutrition, stating, The brat diet is very easy to digest and helps you keep down food. Some people say greasy foods are helpful, but a heavy meal can make you feel worse because it's in your stomach for a lot longer. That makes this week's hangover cure. Try the brat diet you big babe. <laughs> now a word from our sponsors and as you are our sponsors we are completely listener supported well the word from a sponsor is a word from you we got an email of, uh, with the word holocaust in the subject line which was clearly meant to grab our attention and it did I will not tell you who sent this email to us as I do not want them to get any more attention than they may already be receiving Or do I? The email starts friendly enough. Hi, Chuck. Despite waste and inefficiency, the U.S. is on the right side of the war in Ukraine. I think the writer here is implying that there is a right side in the war on Ukraine. Okay, but that that sentence makes sense, I guess. That is, if you consider the options that the U.S. can either be on the Ukrainian side of the war 
or the Russian side. However, I seriously doubt the U.S. ever considered being on the Russian side of the war. I mean, why would the U.S. side with Russia in the invasion of Ukraine? Also, there's waste and inefficiency in every war, so I do not know how waste and inefficiency may affect whose side the U.S. is on in the Russia-Ukraine war, or any war for that matter. You would think the waste and inefficiency in all wars would lead one to the conclusion that we should all be opposed to every war, but according to the email writer, we can set that aside when it comes to the war in Ukraine and U.S. participation in that war. The email writer continues, Now it's time to put a stop to the mogul, M-O-G-U-L, horde and its leader. The term I'm familiar with is Mongol horde, not mogul horde. So let's start with the phrase Mongol horde, which sounds rather racist to me. And I doubt the vast majority of Russians would consider themselves Mongols, although the Soviets did a lot for the Mongolian people when it comes to modernizing their cities and country. However, they also crushed popular dissent whenever it arose. So their relationship is kind of tricky. But is Mongol Horde racist? I'm leaning toward yes, absolutely Mongol Horde is racist, but I had to look it up to make certain. The first thing that comes up in my search is that there is a British hardcore punk band named Mingle Hard, formerly known as Mongol Horde. The band formerly known as Mongol Horde states, we're a brand new band who bear no relation to any other pre-existing sarcastic noise rock bands. However, I could not find any reference to what sarcastic noise rock is, so I'm not certain what pre-existing sarcastic noise rock bands Mingle Hard, nay, Mongol Horde, is concerned that we may confuse them with. But who knows? A hardcore punk band could be racist as easily as they could be anti-racist or just as likely fascist as communist. So I searched on, is Mongol Horde racist? which led me to an article at punknews.org with the headline, Koji accuses Frank Turner's Mongol horde of having racist implications. The article reports that in a uh, public Twitter post, punk news writer Koji stated that Mongol horde, the hardcore band fronted by Frank Turner, has a name with racist implications. On the Twitter post, Koji posted a picture of an email to Turner. Koji's initial email to Turner stated, Hello, Frank. I've just learned you have a band named Mongol horde that is playing the 2000 Trees Festival this year. I'd like to understand why the band is named that. Turner responded, Hi, Koji. Thanks for the email. Or Frank, thanks for the mail. Uh, the band name is taken from a so- song by the band Van Pelt. We are the heathens, and we thought it sounded cool. That's all. All the best. Koji then responded, Would you please consider changing the name? It's a very offensive song from a white-fronted band and is now a very offensive band name from yet another white-fronted band. Turner responded again, I'm sorry you feel that way, but it's not intended in that way, and it's not really possible to change it, having been a band for seven years, referencing a song that came out... 20 years ago. So is Mongol Horde racist? It's starting to look like it is and sound like it is. However, what if the person who sent us an email with Holocaust in the subject line actually meant that we should literally put a stop to the Mogul Horde and its leader? Maybe they want us to put a stop to the horde of important or powerful persons, especially in the motion picture or media industry, which is the definition of Mogul. But I do not know what media outside of Russia is supporting the Russians in the war against Ukraine. But maybe that is what they are getting at, the emails getting at, that we need to stop the media that is supporting Russia. Maybe. I don't know. Or maybe they're just upset with the important and powerful who are supporting Russia. I have no idea. The email writer then suggests I read their latest blog, which I think is the only way I will figure out if the blogger is an illiterate racist who was trying to say 
Mongol horde, or a class war wordsmith who has opposed the global military-industrial complex led by the rich and powerful. But I'm going to pass on reading that blog, because if you put Holocaust in your subject line just to get my attention, I probably am not going to want to read your blog. Also, comparing what is currently taking place in the Ukraine-Russia war to the Holocaust is more than a stretch. It's historically inaccurate and just plain wrong. You, too, can email us, message us via Facebook or DM us via Twitter. And if you do, we will likely read your message on air. Coming up on the show, our talk with Esme Van Hoffman, uh, challenging the crypto bro narrative in the wake of the collapse of FTX. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll also have a new edition of The Past Inside the Present, when producer Sebastian Vupper, who holds a doctorate in history, provides us with the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. And that's all coming up following our guest. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. We have an image of those invested in crypto, condescending libertarians insisting they've outsmarted the entire global economic system and us. That hides the suffering of many desperate working class people who, through crypto, had found a way to access banking services that didn't discriminate. In fact, the collapse of crypto wasn't just about rich trust fund kids losing money they could afford to lose. It had a huge impact on the lives of the working class as well. Here to explain, award-winning filmmaker, director, and writer Esme Van Hoffman wrote the Lever article, I Heard It Was Safe, Andrew Gronick and many young FTX investors were tricked into believing the crypto exchange was as stable and protected as a typical bank account. Welcome to This Is Hell, Esme. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. How did you find out about Andrew Gronick, and why do you believe that he is a better representation of the kind of crypto investor that actually is is making these investments instead of the narrative that has been constructed of of, uh, crypto boys by the media? How did you find him, and why do you feel he is so representative of a crypto investor? Yeah, so the inspiration from the article came... um, I guess just from the fact that, well, first of all, Sam Bankman-Fried was, I think, getting unprecedented publicity even after the bankruptcy of FTX. And even after it seemed like maybe this was a Ponzi scheme or there was fraud, et cetera. Um, And there was very little coverage of victims of it, basically. And my understanding was that, you know, unlike... um, a Ponzi, you know, certain Ponzi schemes certainly hurt institutions. And that's a terrible, terrible thing too, like Bernie Madoff's scheme. Um, This one had hurt a lot of people. um, And, you know, that included some, you know, what are considered crypto bros who are playing around with extra money, um, but also um, hurt what were, you know, known as mom and pop investors. which in my mind sort of invokes, you know, not somebody who's super rich, but maybe somebody who's established enough to have a house and a family and a little extra income, et cetera. Um, So when I started digging into this, I was kind of surprised to see over and over again, um, a 
I, somebody I would categorize in a, in a different category, which is somebody who hadn't quite even made it to being a mom and pop investor. Um, these are often, um, you know, people say in their twenties to thirties, um, working low paying jobs, often more than one, um, really sort of trying to dig themselves out of financial hole. And, um, that was put upon them by, you know, being born into your, I guess, sort of, I should say graduating out of, um, in, or either leaving high school or whatever, starting their career in, you know, the aftermath of a recession and then, um, you know, getting pummeled again by, um, COVID and, um, and then also, you know, people who hadn't, who didn't come from wealth, et cetera. So, you know, these are people that, um, were financially incredibly vulnerable. They hadn't even saved up enough money <laughs> to become mom and pop investors. Um, and I was, I was seeing this as I was digging over and over again, and I, it had not received any coverage and, um, I thought it would be important, um, to explain the situation, um, and the lever where I published, um, they are also interested in, in showing, um, you know, the plight of people that might not have clout from money or power. Um, and so that's sort of how I came into it. And then, um, you know, when you're looking for a subject of an article, you need somebody that, um, you know, is willing to go, um, to let you publish lots, you know, details of their lives and, um, and, and, you know, and there is like a crunch for, you know, the time you have to write it in. So, um, Andrew, you know, typified that and that he, you know, he, the type of person, um, that I was seeing over and over again, and then was a very willing, um, subject for the article. Um, and, um, and also, you know, some of these people are, depressed and understandably distracted because they are trying to piece their lives back together. But, um, he was able to, you know, find the time to talk with me, but, um, yeah, I mean, he is a, he was born poor. He's, you know, been struggling to put, um, his, you know, finances together his whole life. Um, you know, his, mother has struggled with homelessness. Um, he's worked most of his life, you know, very low paying jobs, um, and is, you know, currently doing so he is, he's working a couple of jobs and, um, but, you know, he also has a lot of interesting things to say. And I think if you talk to people, um, who when they're receiving and they have, uh, a, you know, being a, a victim of FTX, um, they they have some very good ad advice and, and wisdom from what they went through too. Um, I would also say Andrew um, Gronek, he really, you know, he, he, there's a narrative out there that says, you know, oh, these people, they got what they were coming for. They were doing risky things. Um, but a lot of what the article delves into is um, the fact that first of all they were lied to about how safe their money was and secondly like someone like andrew really was doing a lot of research and um trying to put this information together and it was really because he was lied to that 
um, he ended up being, you know, hurt so much financially. In in his research, by doing his research, he was, uh, while he believed that he was gaining more knowledge, he was actually being misled. What do you think that the media misses? Why, to you, what explains the media's lack of focus on more working class investors when it comes to crypto? What do you think the media loses in their telling of this story when they don't mention that a lot of the people who were invested in crypto in places like FTX were doing this as an investment out of desperation, not just people who could actually, as you're pointing out, afford to lose the money they were investing? Yeah. So, I mean, you're losing a human face to the story. I think it becomes much more theoretical, the the heart and the pain from the fraud. If you don't hear people's stories and don't, you know, see these victims as real people. Um, <clears throat> I think that, um, yeah. And, and, and also I think people, you know, there was this idea that Sam Bankman Freed was earning money to, you know, give it away and help people. Well, here by seeing that he's really taking uh, money from the most financially vulnerable, <laughs> um, he's that's that's not earning. I mean, that's stealing money to, you know, maybe run it through a nonprofit or a government or buy his own property. So we're, you know not even the the means are, are um not even, you know it's not like he was stealing from the rich and giving to the poor like he was stealing from the poor and saying you know i've i have a better idea of what to do with your money so there's that aspect too um and um yeah i mean i just i think it's it's an important component i think lawmakers should know that you know the working class and the vulnerable were really um hit hard by this. And, you know, they could think about some policies, um, including one that Andrew Gronek suggests in the article, which I think is, you know, would be very um, easy to do. It doesn't require money, but he was lied to and told um, that, which uh, FTX propagated the idea, basically, that they were what's known as FDIC insured. So um, there is a government agency that backs um, banks um, and says, you know, customers, if you put in less than $250,000 um, and the banks collapses, we will guarantee that you get your money back. So FTX uh, US was saying, oh, we are FDIC insured. Now this was a lie. And over the summer, um, FDIC caught wind of the fact that FTX US was doing this and um, sent a cease and desist letter, which is certainly a really excellent thing to do um, that kept people from uh, who had not seen that FTX US was FDIC insured from investing. But for those who had already put their money in under the knowledge um, that it was FDIC insured, they were not notified that they're um, placing their money into these bank accounts. That was a lie. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot you can gain from this. Um, in terms of sort of the overall question about why, you know, the media has um, overlooked this, I mean, there's probably a num number of layers. I mean, certainly we live in a culture that's very like celebrity and power obsessed. Um, we also, um, I would say just from like a practical level, um, 
it's, you know, if you already have Sam Bankman Fried's phone number, it's much easier to just call him up and then you can write an article about that, um, you know, trying to find a lot of people that maybe aren't as accessible. Well, that is an article that takes longer to write. Um, and um, yeah, so, you know, there's there's certain built in in challenges um, to that. And then, you know, it's like the, the politics of the place that you're looking for. Um, you know, I was lucky that the, the labor, you know, their mission is to take on, you know, corporate and political uh, corruption. So, um, you know, they're, they're dedicated to this kind of story. And they're dedicated to the investigative journalism that it takes to, um, to, to do this story. And then, you know, it's a passion, you know, takes a, to, to a writer who wants to, 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 to look into it all as well. Uh, there has an image has emerged, a picture of Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX on a stage at a conference with former President Bill Clinton and former Prime Minister Tony Blair, and they're all smiles. Do you think such appearances, as well as celebrity endorsements, played a role in Gronick believing his cash was safe in FTX? Was this more about the genius of San Bankman-Fried, as the uh, media was portraying it, or was this more about the authority he was being given by celebrity endorsements? Um, so I can't specifically talk to celebrity endorsements in Andrew Gronick's case. Um, I do know generally um, people said to me, like I had um, someone say to me that they sort of got the sense that um, FTX was, quote, too big to fail um, because of um, all the advertising and the Super Bowl ads. And I'm sure that the celebrities, you know, played into it. It seemed like a lot of vetted, you know, so I'm sure it was different for every person. I do know um, Andrew Gronick had seen the Super Bowl ad before he decided to put his money in, but he first heard about it through, um, a bunch of YouTube influencers. So I don't know whether you count those as a celebrities or not. Um, but uh, yeah, I definitely think in general that um, all these celebrities and world leaders, you know, backing this company gave it an aura of, you know, this is safe. Now, clearly they were doing other things on the ground too, like, you know, lying about the fact that they were FDIC insured and, uh, you know, stating on their website that they backed the, you know, principal amount that people put into their um, trading platform. These were lies. But, um, you know, also, even if people had sort of a sense of like, oh, is this true? You know, th they clearly had the backing of, of many people and that helps people feel more comfortable um, transferring their money onto the platform. You write that the case of FTX illustrates how lax regulations and the cultural and political lionization of the crypto market allowed hucksters like Bankman Freed to hoodwink numerous consumers, many of whom had limited means into putting their savings into incredibly risky crypto markets. I know this is kind of a bigger picture question, but to you, what explains that cultural and political lionization here in the United States? Why does U.S. politics and culture so often fall for hucksters who hoodwink consumers, as you put it? 
yeah, that's a great question. Um, and probably a very, you know, deep one with many layers. Um, I mean, we, we live in a culture that's obsessed with celebrity. I think we have very, we're in a, a era where we have, um, you know, heavy concentration of, you know, wealth and that wealth, um, breeds, you know, um, power and um you know so i mean if you look at the deep roots of it i think you're looking at everything from um the fact that um you know corporations are treated as people and um they can give political donations you know clearly we have tons of money and politics and so it's very expensive to run a campaign and um you know and and therefore, you know, all the money in politics leads to, uh, you know, politicians needing more money in order to get that money. You know, they're getting, um, you know, they're trying to do favors for companies or wealthy individuals, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, and then it sort of feeds, I would say it feeds itself and then you get more and more uh, concentration of, of wealth and power um, as, you know, laws change that um you know mean people can acquire more wealth and you know income disparities etc um so um yeah and i think that that trickles down you know to the media too um and and people that you know own media companies um you know the the lever where what this is reader supported so it's you see less of that you see they are um you know they're they're funded by readers but um you know a lot of places um you know are looking you know are owned sometimes they're owned by billionaires etc um or sometimes you know sam bankman fried was very smart and he gave a lot of donations to media outlets um which perhaps explains the more kid club approach um that some places used with him and also explains the lack of uh, focus on the impact on the working class, as you did in your article. At The Lever, we are speaking with award-winning filmmaker, director, and writer Esme von Hoffman, who wrote The Lever article, I Heard It Was Safe. Andrew Gronek and many young FTX investors were tricked into believing the crypto exchange was as stable and protected as a typical bank account. You write that just to be safe on November 9th of last year, just two days before FTX FTX's valuation was plummeting on November 11th. Gronek decided to withdraw the small amount of what he believed were his riskier crypto investments, as well as the few thousand dollars that he had directly deposited in the exchange to earn interest. He was counting on the, that cash to help him cover bills when money ran short. All of these investments provide, provided him with much-needed income, and he was fully expecting to put it back on the platform when it was safe to do so. So he had success with crypto. Crypto had helped him in paying bills in the past. It had provided much-needed money, and even though FTX was having trouble, he still had not lost faith in the long-term viability of either FTX or crypto more generally. Did he give you any impression that he believed FTX was just a bad apple in crypto, or that crypto was still had a very promising future. Did he think that this was an anomaly, or did he lose faith in crypto entirely? I can't fully say where he is now. Um, I know he said because the crypto came out easily, it showed that there was some value to it. Um, 
but um, whether he will be investing again or putting putting his money in a platform, I, I guess I'm trying to stay away from the word investing because he did invest a little bit, but a lot he thought he was storing in what was equivalent of a bank account, as did many other people like him. Um, yeah, whether he he does that again, I I, I can't say. <laughs> um, I know he was, you know, certainly burned pretty badly by this experience. You write that Gronek made the withdrawal request via the FTX US app on his phone, and it looked like it had gone through. But as the days passed, the cash never came. So the Washington Post reported last week on the day after your story was posted that more than half a million people who deposited money with collapsed crypto lender Celsius Network have been dealt a major blow to their hopes of recovering their funds, with the judge in the company's bankruptcy case ruling that the money belongs to Celsius and not to the depositor. The Post also quotes Aaron Kaplan, a lawyer with the financial-focused firm of Gusray Kaplan Nussbaum and co-founder of his own crypto company, saying, quote, there are many other platforms that feature terms of use that are similar to Celsius's. Customers need to understand that the risks they are taking when depositing their assets onto insufficiently regulated platforms. Essentially, what Kaplan seems to be saying is it's the fault of the consumer for not reading the fine print of their conditions of service. Were Gronick's issues with getting his money back from FTX all caused by uh, fine print? How much of the responsibility for people losing money in crypto is their own fault for not reading the fine print? I think that uh, it is not just that they didn't read the fine print because I went and I read some of the fine print and on FTX's website, it says that they, so if you deposit cash into their website. It says that they back that principal amount that you put in. Now they claim that they uh, were giving you 8% uh, interest, APY. Um, but that one, if you read the fine print, it says we, we're not necessarily going to back this interest. However, if you read that fine print, you could easily think like, oh, well, like, let's say I put $100 in, I will always get those $100 back. I'm and I can gain by getting my 8% interest. Um, and even if it doesn't, you know, if they don't end up backing that 8% interest, which they say they will try their hardest to do, well, at least I haven't lost my original deposit. Um, that did not turn out to be the case. So you can see by reading the fine print here <laughs> um, that somebody could have gotten uh, very much the wrong impression and many people did, and then they lost their savings. For those who are vulnerable, uh, for people like Gronek, why would FTX be more attractive than a regular bank? What can FTX provide? What service, desperately needed service, can FTX provide to people like Gronek that are desperately needed? Um, yeah, so there's a lot of <laughs> things to unpack here. I mean, first of all, it's easy. It's on your phone. Um, they... Uh, provided no fees. Um, they provided 8% interest on money that you were storing in the bank. That's more than um, any bank that I'm aware of um, for just literally storing, not for investing, um, will guarantee. Um, and on top of that, um, you know, they were going after um, people. This was not, or excuse, but they were 
like he's in the, he's in the category of what's called um, on or underbanked. He would probably be in the category of underbanked. But um, you know, they knew that there was this market of people that um, either didn't have access to banks or had less access, and they were really um, targeting those people. So um, those are a number of the factors. How, how dependent do you think FTX's success was on targeting the working class? And do you think that is a big part of crypto's success that may, maybe many people are overlooking, that uh, they're dependent, the uh, profits from crypto, the bottom line of uh, crypto is dependent on targeting the working class? Um, so I don't know the percentage, but um, clearly, I've, I've, I've well, I would hedge a guess that, you know, if you look at sort of Ponzi schemes or Ponzi type schemes that go on and on for a while, like look at the, um, I guess not technically a Ponzi scene, but if you're looking at the, um, you know, financial collapse in um, 2008, um, you know, they needed to feed, to feed the beast, they needed more and more mortgages, right? And after a while you run out of wealthy individuals in their mortgages. And that's when they started, um, you know, issuing these sort of junk mortgages for lack of a better uh, way of describing it, where, you know, they would say, oh, you don't need anything down, just just sign here, you know, so they could keep selling these packages of, of bad mortgages. Um, and I think, um, so I, I don't know, but, you know, if you're trying to make as much money as humanly possible and you've run out of um, people are, I mean, I don't know if they ran out, but they, they need more and more. So they're going to, you know, go after these markets that also, um, you know, don't have the same, um, the same relationship, um, with, uh, what's, I guess you could call it legacy banking or, you know, more established, um, typical U S banks that are FDIC insured. And you point out that unlike the narrative about crypto bros, Gronek did not wildly invest money in get-rich-quick schemes. Uh, instead, he took that what he believed to be a thoughtful and cautious approach to finances and tried to do his own research. He would make a deposit every few weeks and, as he says, began to trust it. He even started writing on a WordPress blog about the markets and finances. Do you think one of the attractive aspects of crypto is, or for many was, crypto as an alternative that produced profits and gave investors a feeling of expertise, of figuring out the system, uh, figuring out an economic system which had, in Gronex's case and in many other people's case, had not worked out well for them and actually beating it? Do you think that one of the attractive things of about uh, crypto is that, you know, you think that you're beating the system? Yeah, I mean, I'm. I it's it, that's hard for me to say. Um, I never heard from Andrew Gronet that that was particularly um, something that he felt. I think he he saw this as like a solid, you know, stable way to supplement his income um, with the interest on what he thought was like FDIC insured money. Um, I'm sure maybe there are some people like that. Um, some of it is just, I think, where you land and in terms of how you're getting educated financially, like if they're targeting 
working class people or what they call the on and underbanked, you're going to find out about that sooner. Um, for instance, um, they had a couple of, um, they were, so Sam Bankman fried I, I believe in May, uh, gave a testimony to um, the uh, committee um, for the U.S. House of Representatives. And he talked about how he was trying to target these what are called un and underbanked and um and and talked about a couple of initiatives one which had started um, that one was in Broward County in Florida and I think he was actually about to uh, start one in Chicago um and 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 wanted to expand from there and it's all under sort of the um umbrella of like charity we're helping you know people educate themselves financially and we're going to give you this small amount of money or we're going to give you this bank account and it's linked to a crypto wallet you know presumably ftx's um and um so you know it's it's if you don't know anything about that world if that's what you learn about first you know that's what you might end up doing. It's hard to, you know, envision financial possibilities that you don't know about. And if, if they're the ones coming to, um, working class or, um, you know, financially vulnerable, poor people, um, that's, you know, and, and, and are being educated sometimes by, I mean, these are programs that were, um, through, you know, um, nonprofits and backed by local governments like Broward County was involved um, with the one in Florida. I believe um, that at least um, Mayor Lori Lightfoot was um, tangentially involved in the Chicago one. It never came to pass where people got their money and these accounts. Um, But yeah, if, if somebody's saying, you know, including the government, you know, here's a a program, (laughs) Um, they might be more likely to trust it. You mentioned the influencers earlier. You said what's more, many of the influencers who had convinced Gronek to invest in crypto had personal deals where they were paid by FTX, according to a Market Watch report. By sponsoring podcasts like Millennial Money, the company was likely trying to target economically vulnerable millennials and other young adults who are trying to become financially stable. So is any of that legal? Can corporations pay podcasts to promote their products? Or can podcasters uh, take money from corporations and then do everything they can to keep that relationship between podcaster and corporate sponsor secret? Is that completely legal? Um, So I am not a lawyer. I don't know. Um, I don't believe that these podcasters are in trouble. (laughs) Um, There were certainly sponsorships and advertisements on. Um, so it wasn't completely hidden, but I do not, I don't think it was illegal. Um, and, um, yeah. And I think also, you know, some people might not have appreciated, um, the fact that the sort of the influence that FTX's money might have on these podcasters, Um, But, you know, certainly, you know, I think in the article, I talk about how there was a deal with one um, podcaster slash YouTuber, um, you know, where he got a certain amount of money every time he mentioned FTX. I do not believe that that was um, 
you know, well-known, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that is legal. I mean, look, you have like product placements in movies and I don't, I I think we kind of know it happens, but it's not like they disclose, you know, every movie that, you know, oh, Pepsi paid us, you know, X amount of money to put the Pepsi can in there. Um, so, uh, yeah, that is, I believe something that legally exists in our society. So you write, there are countless others who also lost all or most of their life savings, often less than $10,000. Some were counting on the money for basic needs like food. Gronek and his fellow investors might have been better prepared if the FDIC had alerted them to the risks. According to the FDIC's August 18th, 2022 letter to FTX US, by that point, the agency knew that FTX US was falsely publicizing that it was FDIC insured in ways that were likely to mislead or potentially harm customers. While the FDIC asked in this letter for FTX US to cease and desist from making these statements, the agency didn't alert or require FTX US to notify anyone who might have already been misled into investing in the exchange. To what extent is this all because agencies within the government like the FDIC simply do not have the resources to fulfill their agency's mission? Is this just a matter of underfunded government agencies, or is there something more to this about FDIC not alerting investors that they uh, that uh, crypto or FTX US was not FDIC insured? Um, so I, I don't know. <laughs> the short answer is I don't know. Um, I don't think it would cost them any money in that cease and desist letter to uh, add, you know, please make sure you inform all your current customers. Um, We do things like recalls, you know, companies have to do recalls. My guess is that this is a lapse in policy, basically, um, that um, this is a policy we need to change. Um, And I don't know whether that should happen at the congressional level or um, whether it could just happen through an agency. But I would hope um, that if the story of these people that were uh, victimized that way gets out and people were to read this article and or listen to the show or hear about it any other way, um, I think that is a very simple solution. I would I would hope it would be so simple uh, that it could get bipartisan support and um, protect consumers going forward. Just a couple more questions for you. Uh, did you get the impression that Anthony Gronek blamed the government any more or less than he blamed FTX? Did he view this as the fault of the government, as the fault of business, or as a collaborative effort? Um, I think... I can't say with certainty. Um, you know, I think he certainly felt lied to uh, by FTX, but I think he wished um, that the government, um, at least certainly in the future, would do more. And I honestly think that he is still hopeful that maybe they will uh, recover his money. And I know that he's reached out. I, in fact, it mentions this in the article that he's reached out um, to his um senators and to the SEC. Unfortunately, he has not heard back from any of them. 
Um, so I can I can only speculate on how that makes him feel. That's not surprising, the lack of response. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write that Gronek says regulators need to take action to ensure what happened at FTX doesn't happen again and to try to salvage the lives of those who have been financially decimated. As he put it, we need to all tell our government to act on the matter. While acting on the matter is absolutely necessary, and it is never too late to do something about fraud in crypto, that said, how late is it? Is it too late to hold m- many of those originally responsible for crypto frauds accountable for profiting off those who live vulnerable and precarious lives? How late is it in holding those accountable for crypto fraud? Um, well, Sam Bankman-Fried has been indicted, so I think that's a good step. Um, you know, the Southern District of New York is on the case. Um, so yeah, I think I think now is the time. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, the, the information contained in this article can help um, people understand that this really did have a, you know, a terrible impact, particularly on very vulnerable people. Um, so this isn't just, you know, a theoretical, you know, white collar crime or um, even, you know, battle of the titans. It's, it's you know people struggling to try to get by financially that were really crushed by this. We have been speaking with award-winning filmmaker, director, and writer Esme von Hoffman, who wrote the Lever article, I Heard It Was Safe. Andrew Gronick and many young FTX investors were tricked into believing that crypto exchange was as stable and protected as a typical bank account. You can follow Esme on Twitter at Esme underscore Von. That's E-S-M-E underscore V-O-N. And find out more about Esme at EsmeVonHoffman.com. One last question for you, Esme. And as we do with all of our our guests, I promise, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So what's wrong with having schadenfreude when it comes to crypto collapses? Why not get pleasure from condescending online crypto bros who finally get their comeuppance, why not get some, you know, pleasure out of uh, getting what they deserve? Or is social media a poor indicator of what crypto investors look like? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, I think the problem is that real people got very hurt and are in our terrible, terrible situations. You know, I mean, there's people that were using or would use the money they had um, put in the exchange for food, um, for housing, you know, for very, very, very basic needs. And, um, and now it's, it's gone. So it's not just a, you know, you know, thing where somebody lost their extra millions or whatever, you know, these are often very small amounts of money, but meant a lot to, you know, people who don't, you know, who needed it. Esme, I really appreciate you being on the show with us today. I really look forward to having you on the show in the future if, uh, when you have new writing come out. Thank you so much for being on our show. People can find out more about Esme at esmevonhoffman.com. Thank you so much for starting off our 2023 so well. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Take care. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, and what an abyss cryptocurrency is, this is hell. Real quick, congratulations to former producer Laura Mayer, who is now, get this, 
somebody who used to produce This Is Hell is now the executive producer for ABC World News Tonight. How this happened, I have no idea. But Laura has been having a very successful career when it comes to media. So congratulations to Laura Mayer, former producer on our show, who is now the executive producer on ABC World News Tonight. And people say we don't educate or give back to the university. Here's a Northwestern University grad, and look, we helped them get a job as executive producer on ABC World News Tonight. Okay, I don't know how much we helped. If you appreciate what you just heard from Esme von Hoffman on what the collapse of FTX means for the working class, or if Esme helped you realize, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast shortly after, patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. You can make a one-time donation. You can sign up for uh, our Patreon podcast. You can get any... A piece of our merchandise, all at thisishell.com when you click on support. When you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all that merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me in a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. On last week's Patreon podcast, we continued what has become a sort of an annual tradition here at This Is Hell on Patreon. Apparently, it's a tradition I didn't notice until I started doing a little bit of research on it. I've been in such a fog just since just before the pandemic, it's hard to tell anymore what has happened in the past and what was just a foggy dream. I thought I, I had a clever new premise of giving predictions that I know, that I am absolutely certain will come true. Surefire, can't miss prognostications. Now, that was my idea. I thought it was really unique and clever and that I'd never done it before, but then I looked it up and it seems the reason I thought the idea was so clever was because I'd already done it in 2019 and 2021, and who knows, maybe I did it in 2020 too. I can't remember. And I completely forgot, which suggests that my predictions were not that memorable. But that didn't stop me. In fact, not only did I give new predictions for 2023 that are a 100% lock to come true, I went back and reviewed last year's, or last couple, 2021's surefire predictions and discovered, or 2022's surefire predictions and discovered my predictions were not as spot on as I had hoped. Mostly because something completely unpredictable, but also inevitable, happened to me to derail my entire 2022 predictions. So we went back and did an inventory of my predictions for 2022, which nobody ever does. Made my predictions uh, that I guarantee will come true in 2023, and sadly discovered that some of the worst predictions are timeless and can be made every year, and unfortunately, they always come true also on patreon if you listen to the penultimate the second to last edition of the best of this is hell 2022 edition last week we uh, you heard me uh, read an email from listener alex that he sent back in march of 2022 but got lost in the vast works of the this is hell mailroom alex sent several suggestions for guests who can discuss trans issues on the show 
But one of Alex's suggestions had already been on our show as I was raised Roman Catholic and it is very easy to make me feel guilty. I decided we would try to make it up to listener Alex by playing an interview we did with someone on Alex's list of possible guests to talk about trans issues, and that is journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker Melissa Gira Grant, who was on the show back in 2014 to talk about her uh, then-just-published book, Playing the Whore, the Work of Sex Work, which will change the way you view sex work for the rest of your life, or at least that's what it did to me. But the only way you can hear my perfect predictions for 2023 and a talk on sex work that will change the way you think about sex work, maybe, is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Lindsay, please remind us again, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what have you repeatedly failed to do but keep trying to achieve anyway? Do we have any responses on Facebook or Twitter yet? We have three responses on Facebook. Sweet. Go to our most recent i don't want to read the most relevant the facebook chosen most important um okay the first response from brayden s is get a full night's sleep oh brayden get Get some some rest exactly (laughs) talk to those people at wild folk farms they'll help you fall asleep wild fork farms you need cbd i know i think oh it's folk yeah F-O-L-K. I don't know where I got fork from. I don't know, but I like wild fork. <laughs> um, yeah, that stuff works. Yeah. yeah <laughs> CBD. <it does. laughs> uh, Mark A says, I keep trying to pay attention to the news without hearing about Elon Musk or Prince Harry, but fail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sad. True. <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's why you shouldn't listen to the news. <laughs> yeah, don't watch the news. The more you watch the news, the less you know. <laughs> And Fabio AJ, what are you repeatedly failing to do but keep trying to achieve anyway? Fabio AJ is failing to enjoy work. <laughs> Continue doing that. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, and we will be telling you what Jeff's moment of truth is about later this week. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week as well. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. It's now time for Dr. Sebastian Vopper for the first time ever over the phone. I believe it's the first time ever. And the past inside the present when Sebastian, who has a PhD in history, gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of our present. Sebastian, on the line. Take it away, sir. Hello. Hello, Sebastian. Take it. You're supp- Lindsay, play my intro. Oh, there oh, you go. I'm sorry. <laughs> See, that's what I was warning Sebastian about beforehand. That you were going to forget to. I don't that. know how to do this. Yeah. Here right. we go. The past inside the present. Yay! Yeah! <clears throat> so, I, I honestly, writing this, I wasn't entirely sure if I hadn't talked about this already, but then again, 
a lot of these things that I'm talking about. They are things that I talk about a lot. So anyway, um, today I'm going to talk about uh, history, neutrality of historians, and apolitical teachings of history, which are, well, as you'll see, kind of difficult, if not kind of nonsensical. Whether a history historian teaches or writes history, one of the supposedly most important qualities they need to display in doing so is the strict adherence to neutrality and objectivity. There is a good reason for this. After all, a historian is supposed to take themselves out of their work as much as possible. And in the sense uh, of the grandfather of the profession, Leopold von Ranke, tell it as it truly was. Whether or not such a thing is possible, however, is another question. After all, we are all shaped by the times and circumstances we live in, and then there is, of course, the question whose voices in the historic record we highlight and whose voices we rather ignore. There is this myth out there that historians, and by extensions history itself, must be apolitical, just an endless procession of facts without judgment, without opinion, regardless the subject matter. Historians, then, should never be activists, should always be passive, enigmatically apolitical. And yet, the best and most influential histories are written by people who go basically against this notion. A not insignificant contingent of historians are about Marxists to some degree. Me, personally, I'm not really sure if I actually am among those, but I am at least aware of Marxist conceptions of history which given that history is supposed to be this entirely value-neutral apolitical institution seems like a contradiction within itself. Marxist historiography basically centers the mode of production as the main analytical tool, looks at the ways people across time have worked or rather labored together, looks at materialism and who in any society has control. So in any society across time basically has control of the means of production and who has not who produces surplus value and who benefits from that surface surplus value, et cetera, et cetera. I am just using this as an example here. I don't want to really go into the weeds. Marxist approaches to history have been quite influential and have shaped a lot of our current understanding of the past. But they are, of course, as such, not apolitical or neutral, since the underlying proposition is that the people who produce the surplus value should, of course, be the ones who benefit most from it. At least that's what I guess people should be understanding when we're engaging in Marxist quote-unquote history. On the other hand, labeling uh, by labeling it Marxist historiography, one knows pretty immediately where this view on the past comes from and where adherence to this view of the past are located within the political spectrum. And that gets me to the problem of teaching history in the present moment. As graduate instructors, we were all at basically all points told to minimize our personal politics when teaching. The ideal history teacher, we were told, is one where the students have no idea what their politics are. Uh, we were not supposed to relate any sort of value judgment on the subject matter we were teaching. Slavery, well, some said it was bad, some said it was good. It's not our place to judge. The students need to make their own judgment based on the sources alone, basically. Hitler, well, sure, some people admire him still today. Others do not. It's not our place to judge. Let the students decide. 
And if we have a political persuasion of ourselves as teachers, we should just keep it under wraps completely, especially if this was a progressive persuasion, a more leftist persuasion, because we might otherwise scare off conservative students who then would not dare uh, to voice their opinions in class. And as a teacher, I largely rejected all of this. Maybe this makes me a bad teacher. I don't know. My approach was basically the opposite. I would essentially introduce myself as the flaming leftist that I am and explicitly state that the history I teach will always have a somewhat leftist slant because, well, I'm teaching it, so that's that's how that happens. Um, I thought it better for my students to know exactly where I stand and what my values were. I would never force them to agree with those values, but them knowing what my position politics are, I still believe ultimately makes for a better classroom experience for everyone. But what about the poor conservative students? Well, I never had complaints from any students about my politics or about being open about my politics. There have been a few think pieces in uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education, the trade publication um, of college professors, champion championing this extreme value neutral approach that essentially coddles quote-unquote conservative students. And the argument goes that if these students see their teachers having a leftist progressive stance, which ostensibly agrees with the majority of their peers, actually, um, because, you know, like conservative students are seen as the marginalized uh, in, in classrooms across, you know, the country, uh, these conservative students will withdraw and not participate in class because they believe their own values and opinions are not being respected. To which I say, well, maybe we should talk about what values and opinions would that be exactly? Because working with conservatives on history projects can really be hair-raising. It's not that conservative histories are impossible or that they are by definition always bad histories, but more often than not, conservatively slanted histories twist the historical record so it agrees with conservative readings. And if they don't outright fabricate things to essentially justify the current status quo or a status quo that keeps marginalizing the marginalized and retains power for the powerful, uh, if not worse things. So yeah, it's really like what what Christ, what values are we really talking about there? And like, and and you can write conservative history without um, kind of you can do that without doing that, but it's always kind of mm, mm, question of how much that's possible. Uh, but the question still, it just has to be asked, especially in the current political climate, what values would conservative students champion that got them in trouble with their not as conservative peers and their not as conservative teachers? So likely rejection of abortion rights, which uh, as listeners are hopefully aware, come with a whole different set of issues in terms of bodily autonomy. And they would probably also essentially uh, uh, want to do away with all well, and we also need, we need to remember, uh, kind of screwed up the letter here anyway. Uh, also, we have to remember that essentially all abortion criticism is based in theories of white supremacies and rank misogyny. Those are not leftist critiques, those are simply the facts. But conservatives would also likely want to reject any exploration of what today would be understood as non traditional family values. So, minority rights in general for, you know, like sexual minorities, LGBT. LGBTQ, LGBT, Jesus, LGBTQ people, 
And granted, I am constructing a bit of a strawman here since so far I have not had an out, any outspoken TPUSA members in a classroom of mine. But generally, the kinds of values conservative Americans champion these days very quickly arrive at a point that refuses to recognize the right of many groups of people to live who are not white, cisgendered, and heterosexual. And those are not values that should be respected, but they are, those are values, quote-unquote, that should be challenged. Whether or not, you know, they, whether or not they are really firmly held beliefs, but they should in, in any case be challenged. And what I keep wondering in all of these debates about teachers having to be politically neutral, what was, what was, what if who the teacher themselves is, is by definition not neutral? What if a history teacher is trans or, or black or from a country the United States has historically exploited, like Guatemala? What about Palestinian historians teaching in the US? Can people by that simply not teach history? Is that just some, something these people should not do because they're like their own being? I'm not, I don't want to use the word identity, but their own like background makes them not neutral or teach at all since their existence is wrapped in a position that cannot be neutral. And this is where the whole debate simply breaks down who we are as people always influences our teachings and our scholarship and generally that makes for better history if we are honest and open about these things. And this historical and this historical profession at large does not banish openly Marxist historians to the trash, to the trash bins simply because their writings are not perfectly political neutral, politically neutral. So, why do we banish teachers um, in in that way? Now there is, uh, of course, an issue where historians as a group will absolutely and rightfully banish right wing historians. Just ask Dinesh D'Souza or a whole stable of Holocaust-denying revisionist historians who try to argue the Nazis were the good guys, actually. Of course, the problem with those people is then also that their craftsmanship usually sucks and that they produce simply bad histories that, that do not agree with the sources or that they have to twist sources or that they just have to make things up from thin air. And it's not as if the left doesn't have people like that, too, who also rightfully and justly get largely banished from the profession, and mostly for the same reason. If left-leaning historians fudge their sources and, prove, and, and to, to prove their points, they also get laughed out of the profession just as harshly as right-leaning historians do. It's just that the historical record more often than not proves people on our side uh, to be right rather than it does with, uh, with the people on the other. And that is even before I start talking about the panic around critical race theory and how teaching accurate American history makes white people sad and therefore shouldn't be done at all. But that is a whole different topic that really deserves its own full length treatment in uh, this year, Healthscape of Ours. So, Sebastian, is this your first not in studio, but over the phone, passed inside the present? And if so, what do you think? Because you are moving to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and if you want to continue doing the past inside the present, they're going to have to be over the phone or however we put guests on air or wherever we put the guests. I don't know. But but you know what I mean. So how did you like doing it over the phone? Is this your first over the phone, past inside the present? Uh, I think it is. Um, I think it is. 
I'm not entirely sure, actually, now that you're asking me. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's fine. It's fine as long as the, you know, audio quality does not suffer completely. Uh, yeah, there's a little background, like there's a sound that I thought was a T. That's the radiator. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> it's the it radiator. It wasn't there during soundtrack. I thought, so. <laughs> it, I thought it was a tea kettle at first. Then I thought uh, Sebastian was so talented that he was playing a theremin at the same time as oh doing Past Inside the Present. <laughs> so I thought that was very cool, too. Uh, but one of the things that you're, you're the, but we are topic about uh, historians or te- people who are teaching history at university level needing to be neutral. It made me think of that whole idea when it comes to journalism of being objective, of also mm. like, journalists needing to be n- neutral. But that's like, you know, uh, having that as a horizon. You're not supposed to be necessarily yeah. neutral. It's supposed to be something you're trying to attain that you can never attain. So I don't mind the the aim for objectivity within reporting or, mm. or even uh, neutrality in trying to give people uh, history. I don't I don't mind the goal of that, but as human beings, we're not neutral. We're not objective. So trying yeah. to have this pretense of neutrality or objective or objectivity when it comes to uh, teaching history or writing journalism seems like it's an impossibility. So uh, do you see the, is do you think there's a commonality there between journalism and history when it comes to objectivity and neutrality? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm like I'm not and I should maybe clarify. I'm I'm not saying that historians and and by extension journalists should just not bother being neutral like at all. There is a certain kind of neutrality that that you know should you you should still kind of strive for. But at the same time, it's it's as I said, like it's impossible to really take yourself entirely out of that. Um, that's that's just not like it's 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 kind of a weird dichotomy where where you have to be aware of that. On the one hand, you cannot be really neutral. On the other hand, you should sort of like maintain a certain like you sh- you should sort of strive for a certain neutral stance. While acknowledging, I think it's like with with a lot of things where you where you, like you have to acknowledge your own inherent biases and like 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 I said, I think it's better to be upfront about these things rather than be like, no no no, I'm a historian, so I'm completely neutral, which it's just not something that's possible. And you should and should also just not really be. I mean, it should be expected that you strive for it, but it shouldn't be expected that you are neutral in 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 everything. It, it should be expected that you are aware of your own own biases and are aware of your own slants and aware of what what inf- in, informs your scholarship um and that then produces i think a better kind of i don't does that make sense like does this produce a better kind of neutrality than this sort of fake neutrality to to adhere to yeah it does because the fake neutrality is dishonest it's being covert it's being clandestine and once you start down that uh road of being dishonest to the people who you're talking to what what, wherever you're talking to them whether it's on the radio or in a classroom that that just completely ruins the relationship for the entire way to go because you just if you're not being honest you're not being honest you know the only time i've ever seen a student confront a teacher about their politics was in an econ 101 class that I think I failed. Mm. I think I failed that class three times. <laughs> so there, there was this, uh, the teacher said today, we're going to talk about homelessness in the United States and what causes homelessness. But he's just do, using it through graphs and stuff, you know, so he's trying mm. to look as objective and neutral as possible. But this kid stood up in class and said, there are no homeless. 
And the teacher mm. said, excuse me? And he's like, there are no homeless. They're the invisible homeless. I've heard President Reagan talk about this in the past. He said that there are no homeless, that they're invisible because he never sees them and I never see any homeless people. So they don't exist. So we shouldn't be talking about homelessness in this class. Mm. So, yeah, that class went well. <laughs> All right, Sebastian, until next week when you re- – well, you're going to be here for Thursday for Patreon. Yes, You'll Thursday, be producing Patreon. that with me and hanging out yeah. with me. But, uh, you know, Sebastian is so, so in demand. We have to now put him behind a paywall in order for us to get more subscribers on Patreon. All right, take care, Sebastian. Yeah, bye. Bye. So, Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell later this week? Let's see. Tomorrow, we have investigative journalist Stefania Mariti, who will discuss the case of Julian Assange and her new book, Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. And then following Stefania, who's the next guest after that? We will also have the return of journalist Christopher Ketchum, who wrote the Intercept piece, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions Should Be at the Center of Climate Revolt. Yes, class needs to be a bigger part of climate change revolt. Also coming up later this week, we will have the inaugural edition of This Week in Rotten History for 2023. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at patreon.com slash thisishell at 10 a.m. and podcast shortly after at the same place. We will have a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff attempts to influence the influencers. And we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell, as well as read more of your answers to this week's question from hell. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we will be revealing next week's guests as well. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for another past inside the present. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>